so good to see you all uh, this morning. Thank you that uh, you all are so faithful here each and every Sunday. Um, I understand, and I got to hear uh, Adam's sermon uh, on uh, the internet uh, while we were gone. That was a wonderful sermon. And for some of you who are visiting, yeah, that's good. And for you who are visiting, uh, you now know that uh, we have a young man who uh, God has anointed. Uh, to be honest, I don't purposefully listen to a lot of uh, preachers on a weekly basis. But I will tell you this, I would listen to Adam every week. And, uh, but you're not going to preach every week for maybe a couple of years. <laughs> But we are continuing our study in Titus. We are in chapter 2. Today we're talking about the school of grace. We're going to begin with verse 11. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one discard you. And let's always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you very much. We are all students of some kind. Uh, it is a part of our nature to learn. In my early years, I did not learn well in class. It was hard for me to concentrate. My mind would wander outside the window I would look at the birds and other animals, and then if the teacher asked me a question, I would have a deer-in-the-headlights look. To this day, I get numbers and words mixed up. My call and determination to finish all my graduate studies were in spite of my lack of academic skills. So for you parents who are concerned about slow learners in your family, there is hope. <laughs> now, children often miss the meaning of words when it comes to learning, especially if it's in a teaching environment. For instance, a teacher may ask Maria, Maria, would you go to the map and find North America? And Maria would go to the map and point to North America and say, here it is. And the teacher would say, that is correct. And then turn to the class and say, class, who discovered America? And they all in unison would say, Maria. <laughs> or take John, for instance. He's doing his math on the floor. He's doing his multiplication. And so the teacher asks him, why are you on the floor? He says, well, you told me to do it without tables. Yeah. <laughs> 
it really does go downhill from here. <laughs> Teacher asked Donald, what is the chemical formula for water? And Donald said, H-I-J-K elemento. And the teacher said, what are you talking about? And you said, and he said, yesterday you told us it is H2O. <laughs> well, some of us have to be a little smarter to get these. <laughs> Especially this next one. The teacher asked, please name two pronouns. And the student said, who, me? The teacher said, correct. So all of us are students in some way or another. We're always learning something. Some things are helpful. Some things are not. But this is the same problem that happens in church or in reading the Bible or attending Bible lectures or worship services or hearing sermons. The preacher is to work hard at being precise. In what he says, with every possible word. But the hearer also has a responsibility to listen and to contemplate what God's word says and means. If we were to look at education in general, and we can apply it here in education and learning at the School of Grace, we know that students need to learn. It's just a question of what are we learning. We need to learn as necessary as food and clothing and shelter. We also know that students need to be active participants in learning. We learn better by doing and not by hearing. Jesus knew that. Not only did he tell us parables, but he also said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. A third truth in learning is this, that learning is a physiological, not just a mental activity, and it involves the whole body. We all learn more when we are engaged in the subject matter. This is why we encourage you to be in some type of small group. You can't get all that you need in a large group environment. So either a Sunday morning Bible study or some kind of a home group. Maybe you're in a men's small group or a women's small group. There are also Sunday schools for different ages. And we have family groups. This is one of the most important foundational small groups of learning in a church. The point is that we are to be engaged as a whole person. Even during worship service, we want you to be engaged. We don't want you to be passive. Sing, even if you can't. Pray, even if you don't think you know how. Actively listen, even if you have a short attention span. And take notes, even if it's difficult to listen and write at the same time. Today, when I look at these verses, I see a school of grace. Grace is in the very context of this short book, in all the letters of Paul, in all the letters of Peter and John. It is in the letter of Hebrews, 
to the Hebrews. It is in the Gospels. And it is in the Old Testament. Grace is at the very heart of becoming a Christ follower. But it's not just becoming a Christ follower. Grace is at the very heart of being a Christ follower. Growing as a Christ follower. And living your life as a Christ follower. So, please bear with me once again as we review the overall context of this letter that Paul is writing to Titus. It really is important that we see that Titus is overseeing several churches on this island. The pagan, immoral, and unchristian culture is pressing in on the church. And there are those who are living like the culture within the community of faith. Now, the churches are being tempted to take on the immoral attitude and even the practices of its culture. There were also some in the churches who thought the best way to counter this cultural onslaught was to create and maintain the law, the rules, the rituals, and the regulations. They were teaching that a strict life of living under the law of the Old Testament was Another way of combating the external immoral influences. So, I hope you see what's going on here. There are two contrasting philosophies coming into the church and are being lived out in the church. These are big words. Antinomianism and then also legalism. Both positions are condemned by the New Testament. The word antinomian comes from the two Greek words, which means against the law. That is, they brought immoral values into the church because Christ had freed them from the law. So, in their minds, because they were no longer under the law, they had license to do whatever they wanted to do. Since God has forgiven me for my sins and since Christ has paid for my sins, I now live under grace and I can do what I wish because grace covers it. So I can live the way my friends live and I never have to worry about my salvation. That's the antinomian mindset that was pressing in on this, uh, on this church, these churches in Crete. And it is also the same mindset that is pressing in on the churches in the United States. But then we have the legalists. They impose the law with all of its rules and regulations. They impose it upon the gospel and upon the people who are in the church. Their position is quite simple. If you are a Christian, then you will want to follow Jesus by keeping rituals, rules, ceremonies, sacraments, and the law. This is your obligation and duty. Now I want you to know something. Paul has nothing good to say about either one of these camps that are in the church. Both of these philosophies justify themselves with Scripture. That is why it is even more important today that we know what the Scripture says. Not just your elders and your pastors 
and your leaders of your Bible studies, but you as a congregation must know and understand the meaning of the texts in the Bible. Because there are so many people who don't know what the Bible says, and they only listen to what's coming from the pulpit or from their denomination, you can go to one church that justifies immoral behavior within the membership of the church, and they do this by crying out, Grace! Grace! But then you can go to another church that fights against immorality by imposing one law after another upon the people. And the people can't keep all these rules. Well, neither can the pastors. Paul rebuked Peter being a hypocrite. Paul preached grace. Peter preached grace. But Peter was afraid of the legalists from Jerusalem. And therefore, while he would preach grace, he would act according to law so that he would not displease those who believe that the law demands you to live by it if you are a Christian. Basically, they're saying you're saved by grace, but you must perform to stay saved. So beware of the performance treadmill in your Christian walk. It has been said that we falsely believe that we're saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our performance. So, with this as a background, of what's going on in the churches on the island of Crete, we can better understand why Paul wrote what he did to Titus. In order to combat these two extremes, within the church, you need godly elders teaching the truth about grace and the gospel. Paul told Timothy in chapter 1, the first thing you do is you appoint elders so that they can teach sound doctrine, but also live godly lives. Verse 11 starts with four. That pre- presby- Presbyterian, excuse me. That preposition. <laughs> loves the old verses leading up to this scripture. He states all that he needs to in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2. And then he states the problem. And then he says, for the grace. So grace is an answer to the problems that he has addressed prior to this. But grace, the grace of God has to be revealed. You know, before we can discuss the school of grace, we need to understand what the Bible means by grace. Grace is receiving something that you did not earn. It is to be understood in the context of these verses that the gift of salvation is received by something that you did not earn, nor can you earn it. In fact, we can go a step further and say that God's grace is for those who not only don't deserve it, but to those who deny it and speak against it, and even rebel against God's love and grace. Grace isn't for the good people, quote unquote, because none of us are good. 
So what does it mean that God's grace is revealed? The scripture teaches us that in our natural state, we are spiritually dead. We cannot find grace because we're dead. And many of us are not even looking for it. So, why did Jesus come? To reveal God's grace. As a man living a perfect life, a sinless life, and being the perfect uh, sacrifice to pay for our debt, we see grace. Peter put it like this in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the personification of and the means of grace toward us by God. The church and its rituals and its laws are not the means of grace. So what does this grace do? Well, it saves us. The grace of God saves There are many who teach that we are all good people. In fact, so good that if we do enough good works, we can get to heaven. And we've earned a place in God's presence. This may be taught in a church, but this is taught nowhere in the scriptures. May I read for you? That's a rhetorical question because I'm going to read it. A very unpopular set of verses from Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Grace is revealed to save us from ourselves because we cannot save ourselves. God has revealed his anger toward our sin. You can see why this verse is unpopular in the general population. Though we don't like using the word ungodly, Jesus used it, Paul used it, Peter used it. And here we see that Ungodliness is the sin of refusing to honor God as God and Jesus as Lord. If we refuse to honor God, we are in rebellion against even God's love and grace. And God's wrath and anger is kindled towards sin. Now, you might say, Well, you've gone back to the old way of preaching. That's what I heard my granddaddy talk about. No, I want you to listen. The gospel is about God's anger towards sin and his love for you. 
This is where the love and grace of God makes its entrance. God graciously extends grace that saves us from the judgment for our sins. The scriptures tell us that God takes no delight in the destruction or the death of sinners or the wicked. This salvation is by grace. It is not earned. It is offered freely. And it's offered to all kinds and types of people. When he says that this is for all people, he means all kinds of people all over the globe. And it brings us the peace of God. Now, most of us who've gone to church for any length of time, we've heard this very definition of the word grace. But grace does more than save. Notice what he says in these verses. The grace of God trains us. Once we receive God's grace and salvation comes to us, that grace begins to take hold of our very lives and begins to train us to renounce the way we used to live and trains us toward the way of that we should live. The grace of God transforms all who receives it. And it trains us not only to love God, but to love the things God loves. The Greek word for confess literally means to say the same thing. Many people say, well, I've confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Okay, that's good. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we're saying that we believe that what God says is true and we agree with it. And if God says that we're sinners, then confession means that we agree with it. If God says that there is no salvation in any other name except for Jesus... To confess Jesus is to say the same thing that God says about salvation. If God says that salvation changes us in our thinking and our behavior, then we will say the same thing. That's confession. So we need to be careful when we say that we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because we can't truly confess him as Lord if we're not agreeing with him about our state of sinfulness and his name being the only name whereby we must be saved. If God has called us to renounce ungodliness and the passions of this world, will we say the same thing? That's confession. You're not simply confessing what you think you believe. You're saying the same thing about your state that God has said. You see, the saving grace trains us to renounce the worldly passions. Now, passions in and of themselves are not evil. But any passion that draws you from Christ must be renounced. The grace of God trains us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. We are not only taught 
what not to do, we're also instructed on what to do. And the purpose of these verses is to dispel any doubt that God wants us to live according to his promise of grace and not like the world. We are not to give license to immoral living because we say it's grace. And we're not to impose laws to control people. Grace is given by God. And it becomes our motivation and our inner strength and power to change. And the evidence that we have this saving grace is the training grace that changes us. And it does so from the inside out. God saves us from our sin and then he gives us a new heart. He renews our minds so that we will not want to continue in sin. It doesn't mean that we're delivered from ever sinning. It means that we were going in one direction and now we're going in another I know this sounds strange to some of us today. After all, there are some things that we like about the Bible and some things that we don't. And for some of us, we don't like the scripture. But may I quote St. Augustine on this very issue? If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. Because you have placed yourself above the gospel and is the judge of God's grace. So the grace of God saves us. The grace of God trains us. But it also prepares us. He said it trains us until that great appearing. Well, the grace of God that appeared to save us and train us prepares us for the coming of the next age. It causes us. Notice it says to every good work. It causes us. To want to do. Good works. Not that it saves us. But because we're saved. It trains us to do these things. Our text says that we are waiting for something. Or should I say someone. We're waiting for our blessed hope. We're waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior. You see, we are prepared for his coming because God's grace not only saves us, but it purifies us. Did you read that in the scriptures? This entire process prepares us for us to re- for his return. It causes us to be zealous to do good works and not just out of obligation. One of my very favorite verses from 1 John, or verses from 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children Now, I love that. Now, we don't have to wait till you get to heaven. And what we will be has not yet been appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared to take away sins. 
and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So if you don't like that, strike that out of your Bible. And at the very beginning of the Bible, on the title where it says the Holy Bible, God's Word, you can put the Holy Bible, my word. Because either we receive it all or we don't. Now, friends, to stay with the school metaphor, if we come to a close, Jesus coming again is graduation day. Do you look forward to graduation day, to his coming? If you do, it's because God's grace is teaching you to prepare for his coming. So before we close, I would like to ask you a series of questions. Have you received this gospel of grace that brings salvation? Are we recipients of this grace that has transformed us from an old way of living to a new way of living in Christ? Do we see evidence of that grace working in our lives? Are we being trained? To renounce certain things and to embrace godly things. As the Holy Spirit trains you to think differently than the philosophies of this world. In other words, have you entered the school of grace through his grace? The grace that saves is the grace that trains and we are trained to be prepared for graduation. Some of you may find what we have talked about hard today, and maybe you're not used to it, and so you can't wait to go back to some place that's easy. But would you look at verse 15? I think it's up here. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, and let no one discard you. Do you know that it is both a privilege and a responsibility and an obligation for us to tell you the truth that's in Scripture and not hide what it says because it goes against our opinions. Some of this is very hard to hear. I understand that. <clears throat> and though many of us are sincere about our faith, there's really a difference between being a true follower of Christ and not being a true follower of Christ. Someone who is not a true follower of Christ really doesn't care about being godly or being trained in righteousness. And they really don't know that they're not a true follower of Christ. Now, you might say, Neil, you're judging. I'm really not. I'm just trying to bring the scripture to light and to the surface. I'm going to quote John Piper from the conference, and he used terminology that I'm going to go ahead and use, but just forgive me. He said this, we should teach the Bible in such a way that fake Christians feel like fake Christians so that they will embrace the truth of the gospel. You see, once grace has captured us, 
and we are rolled in the school of grace, God begins his work in our lives. When we get a sense, not of the obligation and the duty and the laws, but we get a sense of joy. And we begin to see Christ magnified in our lives and people begin to see Christ in our lives. And they are turned to Christ because they see it. God's grace is not seen in accepting cultural norms of morality. So it may get more people in the church. And God's grace is not seen in legalism or judgmental attitude. It is not, it is only seen in Christ. He's the one who paid our sin debt. He's the one who died on the cross and rose again to be with the Father. And he's the one who's coming again. And the school of grace brings us into a right relationship with God and trains us without external, oppressive, judgmental laws. This is the joy of grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this grace that schools us, that saves us, that prepares us for graduation. And we pray, Father, even as we sing about your amazing grace, you would fall upon us, that we would embrace it and see the joy of it. Transform our hearts and our minds and our thinking and our lives. Train us in the school of grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and as we sing. Amen. Amazing grace. 